uh, continue in our series that we've been in for the last few weeks, and that is Don't Waste Your Life. A lot of people are wasting their lives, uh, but as believers in Jesus Christ, we have a higher calling. We have a calling to live the unwasted life. In fact, we learned in the very in- introduction of this series that there's really only two ways that we can live as believers. We can either live the wasted life, and we saw that Jesus believes there is such a thing as a wasted life. We learned that. Or we can live the unwasted life. A life that, in essence, magnifies Jesus Christ here in this world. That's living the unwasted life. And then last Sunday, uh, Pastor Chris filled in. And we saw that from the example of the life of Esau, that if we don't dig up the root of bitterness in our hearts, it can result in a wasted life. Now this morning, I want us to consider how the wrong love can also result in a wasted life. The wrong love. Many of you are familiar with Thomas Jefferson. And he was hunched over his desk, pen knife in hand. And he sliced carefully at the pages of his Bible, cutting select passages and pasting them together to create a Bible more to his liking. The Jefferson Bible, he called it, a book he could feel comfortable with. What didn't make it into the Jefferson Bible was anything that conflicted with his personal worldview. Now, that's the kind of Bible our culture embraces. Unfortunately, that's the kind of Bible many Christians embrace as well. And if we're honest, I, th- I think all of us, if not, you know, or most of us, would have to admit that we have a Bible of our own making, a metaphorical one, perhaps, but a cut-and-paste job just the same. Sometimes we create our own Bible, ignoring or admitting whatever we don't like. I know I've been guilty of this, of creating my, quote, own cut-and-paste Bible by avoiding Well, you know, those difficult and often challenging passages in God's Word. Here's one verse I find really easy to ignore. Really easy to cut out of my Bible, if you will. It's the simple yet challenging words in 1 John 2, verse 15 that Zach read for us. Look at it one more time. In the NIV translation, it says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. Now, there's nothing subtle about that verse, is there? It's concise and it's clear. It's abrupt. It's to the point. In fact, it's only 10 words in the NIV translation. If you have the New New King James, it's 11 words. And yet, you know, 1 John 2.15, this verse here, it's not a verse we tend to underline in our Bibles. We're not inclined to put this verse on a 3 by 5 card. And put it in our car or paste it on our mirror and rehearse it in the morning while we're getting ready or while we're driving to work. I mean, think about it. When's the last time you saw this verse on a plaque hanging in someone's home? Anybody have this on a plaque in your home? No, none of us do. After all, this verse makes us uncomfortable. I know it makes me uncomfortable. It's categorical. John says, do not love the world. It's comprehensive. Do not love anything in the world. And it's intrusive, strategically aimed at whatever we desire most, anything in the world. And yet we need to 
if I can say it this way, we need to put away the scissors. We need to paste our Bibles back together again. Because when it comes to wasting our lives by the wrong love, listen, we are all at risk. Every one of us here this morning. Now, perhaps you're sitting there and you don't quite believe me. Well, let me introduce you to one of the most tragic characters in all of the Bible. I want you to meet Demas. How many have heard of Demas before? Raise your hand. Some of you perhaps have never heard of this character named Demas. That's all right. We're going to learn about this man named Demas. At first glance, Demas appears to be living what we are calling the unwasted life. Here's a guy we would all admire, we would respect, and in some ways we'd want to model our lives after. And yet a little postscript in Paul's second letter to Timothy gives us a very different picture of this guy named Demas. In fact, notice the tragic epitaph of a wasted life of Demas. It's there in your notes, coming up on the screen. In 2 Timothy 4.10, the Apostle Paul writes these words. He says, Demas, in love with this present world, has what? Deserted me. What a tragedy. What a wasted life for Demas. In love with this present world, not only deserted Paul. Listen, he deserted his Savior. Now, you may be asking, well, who is Demas? He was a close friend. He was a traveling companion. He was a fellow worker of the Apostle Paul. He left home and family to hit the long, dusty, and dangerous road to participate with Paul in spreading the gospel and strengthening the early church throughout the Roman Empire. In other words, this guy was involved in ministry. He gave his life to it with Paul. We read of Demas sending greetings to the church in Colossae, into an individual named Philemon. He stood by Paul when Paul landed in prison for the first time. But when Paul was in prison, at the very end of his life, Demas deserted him. This word deserted, it's a, it's a strong word, it's a powerful word, and it means to utterly abandon someone. To leave someone helpless in a dire situation. Have you ever been abandoned before? Abandoned by a friend? I mean, when you needed somebody to be there, to stand by your side, to support you, to encourage you, to, to give you the help that you needed, they left you. This was Paul. Deserted by Demas. When Paul needed him most, he was nowhere to be found. Who was Demas? We could summarize his life this way. It's in your notes. Look at it. Demas started as a disciple of Jesus Christ, a follower of Christ. But he wasted his life as a deserter of Jesus Christ. So what happened to Demas here? How did Demas go from this passionate follower, close companion of Paul, willing to risk all for the sake of the gospel, to a deserter. How did he go from disciple of Christ to deserter of Christ? Where did things go wrong in his life? Well, those are the questions I want us to answer this morning as we look at a life wasted by the wrong love. Notice the first point here, a life wasted by the wrong love, it begins with a change of affection. 
It begins with a change of affection. The Apostle Paul is quite clear about the change of affection that occurred in Demas' life. Notice it. You see, Demas went from loving Christ to loving this present world, Paul tells us. And to indicate Demas' level of commitment to the world, Paul used this Greek word that we're familiar with. We've heard it before. The Greek word uh, called agape. It's the strongest word for the commitment of one's love to someone or to something. And when Paul used this word for love, agape love, Paul contrasted it with the believer's commitment to Christ appearing when Christ returns in verse 8 by using the same word for love, agape. He says this in verse 8, 2 Timothy verse 4, verse 8, to all who love his appearing, to all who agape Christ appearing, they look forward to Christ coming again. Those are believers. And yet Paul uses the same word for love and he uses it, Demas on the other hand, in agape love with this present world. Now, this change of affection in my life, whether it occurs in your life, and certainly it occurred in Demas' life, this change of affection, listen, it doesn't happen overnight. It's a gradual change. It's a very subtle change. In fact, I want you to notice the subtleness in Demas' change of affection. Before Demas deserted, Christ and walked out on Paul, he drifted in his affection for Christ. It wasn't immediate. It wasn't obvious at first. Demas didn't go from disciple to deserter in a day. No, it was gradual. It was a subtle change of affection and an eventual conforming to this present world, as Paul calls it. Now, I'm sure most of us here, we could identify a Demas. We all know of, quote, Demases in this world. Other so-called professing believers who have started out, they have burned bright with the love of Christ. And then suddenly, or at least so it seemed, they, they faded and turned his or her back on Christ, leaving everyone to wonder, man, what in the world happened to that individual? What happened to him? What happened to her? They used to be... Well, they used to be on fire for Christ. They used to love Christ. They used to serve him, be a part of his body. Now look at him. What is going on? And so often it's, e- it's easy to miss the signs, the symptoms of this change of affection that t- transpires gradually in one's life. People can be attending church, singing the songs, and apparently listening to the message as we are this morning, hopefully. No different on the outside than we've always been before. But inside, in the heart, they're drifting. He sits in church, but he's not excited to be there. She sings the songs without affection. He listens to the message without conviction. She hears, but does not apply. And so this change of affection, we need to understand, it begins in the soul. It's gradual and subtle slide from disciple to deserter. So perhaps we ought to stop and ask ourselves a few questions. Are you drifting in your affection for our Lord this morning? You say, oh, it's not that serious, Bruce. 
It's not that serious. I, I know I'm not as excited about my relationship with Jesus as I used to be. But listen, I, really, I'm fine. I'm still attending church. Look, I'm here this morning. It's not like I've left God or abandoned him or anything. I mean, I've just been busy lately. But I promise I'll get back on track soon. See, let me ask you this question. Was there a time you were more passionate for God in your relationship with him than you are right now? Listen, Demas was like that once, too. That's the testimony he has. So what about now? Have you fallen in love with this present world, as Paul calls it? And it's so easy to go through this life unaware of this clear and present danger before us or to simply become apathetic to it. Listen to what President of Sovereign Grace Ministry says, C.J. Mahaney. I quote his words. He says, Today the greatest challenge facing American Christians is not persecution from the world, but seduction by the world. Charles Spurgeon writing over 150 years ago, and yet his, still, his words are still relevant about the problem in the church today when he says, I believe that one reason why the church of God at this present moment has so little influence over the world is because the world has so much influence over the church. Listen, if we're not alert to this clear present danger. If we're not alert to God's warning, we may be in danger even now of drifting down the deserter's path with Demas. I want you to notice God's warning to each and every one of us here this morning. God has placed a warning sign in front of the deserter's path. Notice what it says again, 1 John 2.15. The warning sign is clear. Do not love what? The world. Or anything in the world. Now, before we get all out of sorts here. Oh, Bruce, you're so limiting. Can't believe this. Understand. 1 John 2.15, this verse here, God's warning sign. It isn't simply a do not enter sign. Listen, these ten words point the way to making your life count for eternity. And to understand this warning from God, we must first understand the nature of warnings in general. Listen, they're not legalistic restrictions from a God who is a killjoy in our lives. No, warnings are an expression of God's grace. They're an expression of his mercy in our lives and his wisdom. They're given for our good, just as we give warnings to our own children. We're the children of God as believers in Christ. And he's given us this warning for our own benefit, for our own good, to protect us from sin and its consequences. And so let's, you know, if we will... And I'm with you. Let's put away our scissors of this verse. Let's paste our Bibles back together again. And let's take a closer look at God's warning here in 1 John 2.15. First of all, I want you to see the world that we're not to love is the fallen world that is seeking to exist apart from God and living in opposition to God. 
I want us to be clear. The Apostle John here is not calling us to some kind of monastic separation from the world. Listen, John is not calling us and telling us we all need to go hide in a cave and isolate from the world around us. That's not what he's calling to it. It's not us for no more mentality. The world here in 1 John 2.15, it doesn't refer to the created order or to the blessings that come from living in a modern society. We can, all we have to do is go back to Genesis chapter 1. Verse 31, for God created the world and he declared it very good. And I, I tell you what, I, I got up this morning and as I do every Sunday morning, I come here really early. Uh, this morning was no different. Got up as, before the sun was even just coming up a little bit. Stood out on the deck, and it was a beautiful morning. I mean, it was like 58 degrees, 60 something, just absolutely gorgeous, beautiful. I couldn't help but re- be reminded of this because I obviously just studied, prepared for it. And I just looked, you know, and you could see the sun just coming up. And I'm like, man, it's just. Here, after all these years, our world is decaying, and yet it's still beautiful, isn't it? That's not the world we're to not love. We're to enjoy this creation. So when you go to the beach, when you go to the mountains of Colorado, man, stand in awe of the creation of our almighty God. Nor does this verse refer to economic and social structures of society, such as your family, your friends, your vocation, or even our government, as much as we may disagree or agree with it. All these things are ordained by God himself. And of course, we're supposed to love all people, are we not? Both believers in God's family, as well as unbelievers who are outside of God's family. Because we know from John 3.16, God so loved the world. How much did God love the world? Enough to give his son to die for the world so that we could have salvation. We could have eternal life, the forgiveness of sins. That's how much God loves the world. And we are to demonstrate that same love. So what is the world now we're not to love that John is giving us here? Listen, it's the fallen world. It's the organized system of humanity that is hostile to God and is alienated from God. It's a world that is deserving of the righteous wrath of a holy God. And by the way, don't kid ourselves. We were born into this fallen world. We were a part of this fallen world. Until we change families from Satan's family and receive the grace and forgiveness of God through faith in Christ and entered into God's family. That was our destiny. The righteous wrath of a holy God that he reserves in a torment place called hell. And that is why it's a world that's in desperate need of God's grace and forgiveness through Jesus Christ. And it's why we're not to isolate ourselves from this world. And yet, while remaining in the world, we're not to become like the world. In the words of John Stott, who's an author, theologian, commentator, he says this, we must be neither conformed to the world nor contaminated by it. But this world 
I mean, let's be honest, it's right in our face, is it not? I mean, our technological society now brings the world to our doorstep, into our homes, into our very presence. It baits our eyes. It tickles our ears. We're saturated with media. We're bombarded with images on our iPods and laptops. We enjoy countless options and clothes to wear, cars to buy, entertainment to view, music to listen to. And obviously, while all these things are not inherently sinful or evil, listen, so often they're the vehicles of a fallen world. So every moment of every day, whether we realize it or not, we are making choices. We're making choices between a love for this present world that we see with our eyes, that we hear and touch, that a world that opposes God and the love for the risen Christ. Now, some of you may have heard the term worldliness. What is that? What does worldliness have to do with what John's talking about? And how does that come into play in in our lives even today? Well, that brings us to our second point here. Worldliness is simply a love now for this fallen world. We could further define it as it's loving the values and pursuits of the world that stand opposed to God. And even more specifically, worldliness is gratifying. And exalting oneself to the exclusion of God. Let me me further describe the concept of worldliness here. It rejects God's rules. And when you say God's rules, his, his way of living the Christian life. It rejects God's rules. And what it does, it replaces it with our own way of living. It exalts our opinions above God's truth. It elevates our sinful desires for the things of this fallen world above God's commands and promises. Joel Beek summarizes it this way in his book, Overcoming the World. Listen to what he says. The goal of worldly people is to move forward rather than upward. To live horizontally rather than vertically. They seek after outward prosperity rather than holiness. They burst with selfish desires rather than heartfelt supplications. If they do not deny God, they ignore and forget him. Or else they use him only for their selfish ends. Worldliness, he says in the end, is human nature without God. Whoa. That's way too close for comfort, isn't it? That description. And yet, we ought ought to be compelled to kind of just stop and meditate on the words that he said. To stop and ask ourselves some questions here. Does this describe me? Ask yourself, what, what are my goals that I have in life? Whether they're written down or just in your head, it doesn't matter. In other words, what you want in life, your goals, do they drive you forward to financial security, more friends, successful kids, a certain position at work, or do they drive you upward to obeying and magnifying Christ above all? 
What gets you out of the bed in the morning besides the alarm clock or your kids wanting breakfast? I'm not talking about those things. What motivates you? What dominates your mind and stirs your heart? Does outward prosperity appeal to you more than growth in godliness? Do you relate to God as if he exists to further your selfish ambitions? Or are you convinced that you exist to glorify him above all else? Listen, these are tough questions. They're very tough questions. They're they're directed at the heart. But they are necessary if we are to discover whether we have been infected with the disease of what we call worldliness. Some people try to define worldliness as simply kind of living outside a set of rules or certain standards. And if you don't follow these rules and these standards, then you are worldly. Some of you may be familiar with that kind of Christianity. But let me tell you, focusing only on externals misses the whole point that John wants us to understand here. John takes worldliness to a whole different level. He takes it inside. In other words, worldliness at the core, it's internal. It resides in our hearts. We see this in 1 John chapter 2, not in verse 15, but now if you drop down to verse 16, look what he says. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, And the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. Now, when John writes what is in the world, isn't it interesting? He doesn't say this particular mode of dress, this way of speaking, this kind of music, or these possessions that you have. Instead, John says the essence of worldliness is in the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Commentator David Jackman says this. The worldly characteristics of which this verse speaks are in fact reactions going on inside of us as we contemplate the environment or the world outside of us. So what does all this mean? Let's kind of step back and kind of summarize it here for us for a moment. What does all this mean? Listen, it it means this at the issue here. It it, it means the root issue of worldliness is within. The root issue is internal. And that's why it's so hard to see the signs and symptoms in somebody else's life. See, it's internal, not environmental. We must learn to discern worldliness where it lurks. Inside our hearts. John is targeting our hearts here. And although, listen, we have new hearts as believers in Christ. Amen? Isn't that a glorious thing? We are a new creation. And although we have new hearts in Christ, listen, remaining sin in our lives produces what John is calling this lust and this pride. And you know what those two things do in our hearts? It, it, it produces a lust and pride that competes with God's supremacy in our lives. And so we're in this constant tug of war, this constant battle. Because although we have a new heart and we're new creation in Christ, 
We have this old nature and this remaining sin. And let me tell you, it wants to rule. It wants to reign. I want to be my own boss. And it competes with what Christ should be in our lives. The supremacy of Christ. Magnifying him above all things in this world. In fact, John says at the end of verse 15, he just comes right out and says it. You've got to love John here. There's no holding back in him. He just tells it like it is. He says, listen, if anyone loves the world, hey, the love of the Father is not in him. In other words, if we love the world, the love of the Father is not in us. It doesn't get any more clear. On the other hand, listen, if the love of the Father is in us, it squeezes out the love of the world. So Demas now, come back to him. We learn from this guy named Demas that a life wasted by the wrong love, it begins with this change of affection that starts in the heart. Demas went from loving Christ to loving this present world. And he deserted Christ and Paul and ended up wasting his life because of it. So what happens now if we just blow past God's warning sign? God's given us. He's gracious to us. He's given us this warning sign. You guys see it? Presto. Do not love the world or anything in the world. What happens if we blow past it? And we continue now down the deserter's path like Demas did. Well, that brings us to point two. Notice it. A life wasted by the wrong love ends with a change of reward. A change of reward. You say, well, what reward did Demas reap? Well, look at it in your notes. Demas reaped the world. He reaped the world. Now, Paul doesn't say this explicitly about Demas. But elsewhere, Paul made it plain that what a man sows, he also reaps. You can see that in Galatians 6, 7, where he says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. So if you sow to the world... Listen, you will reap the world, both its rewards and its consequences. And unless there's been a terrible drought, get this, you're going to reap more than you sowed. That's a glorious thing, isn't it? Say, yes, that's a glorious thing. Sure it is. Unless you're reaping the wrong thing or sowing to the wrong thing, I should say. Now, here's something I want you to contemplate. Just think about this with me. Here's a question. When Demas deserted Paul, where did Demas go? Where did he depart to? Paul tells us that Demas departed to this prominent city called Thessalonica. Now, I know for most of us here that means absolutely nothing. Thessalonica what? Well, let me give you a little history on Thessalonica. It was a beautiful city. Absolutely gorgeous. It was situated on a hill overlooking the Mediterranean Sea. Don't you just want to be there now? That would, I would love to see the Mediterranean Sea someday in my life. And in that city, Demas, let me tell you, ended up in the lap of luxury. What's interesting is that archaeologists digging in the ruins of Thessalonica have come upon numerous lists, lists of people's names. And on one of the lists of prominent citizens is the name Demas. Now, we don't know for sure if it's the same Demas who deserted Paul or not. But if it is, 
then Demas more than likely has accepted the city's values. In fact, he was more than likely even also on the city council there at Thessalonica. In other words, Demas became somebody in this world. Demas reaped the rewards of this world. But what will Demas be in the next life? What will Demas reap in the world to come? Do you remember our lesson on Moses a few weeks ago? Moses made the exact opposite choice. Moses, he forsook the pleasures and treasures of Egypt, we're told in Hebrews. And instead, he magnified Christ as his most important value in life. Because he was looking ahead to his eternal reward, not in this world, but in the life to come in heaven. So just how foolish would it be to love the world and to reap its rewards? Listen, sometimes we have this fantasy. We think, oh, man, Demas got it made. He reaped the world. Man, he ended up in the lap of luxury in Thessalonica. I wish I could have his life. And you know what? He reaped what he sowed. And he enjoyed a portion of it. And I'm sure he had a great time for however long it lasted. And sometimes we, our, our sight is only, it's about as far as our nose or what we see on the television. And we just, we like, man, I want this. I, I wish I could live that life. This life. Folks, we need to step back and we need a much bigger perspective. We need an eternal perspective. And let me show you the futility of reaping the world as your reward. It's a reward, John tells us, that is passing away and where there is no future. John exposes the world's futility when he writes in verse 17, And the world is passing away, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God, what? Abides forever. And this verse is so clear. These things, John is telling us, they don't last. They are passing away. Listen, don't waste your life pursuing things that won't last. I don't want you to have what John Owen, this Puritan, describes as living affections to dying things. We should be living like there's no future in worldliness, right? Because that's the truth of the matter. This world is temporary, it's superficial, and it doesn't satisfy. And oh, I know the world sparkles and it dazzles. And we, the, the seduction of it is strong. And we want a piece of it. I understand all that. I'm as guilty of that as you. But it doesn't deliver as advertised. But what it does deliver is unadvertised consequences of dissatisfaction and destruction. Listen, this morning, if you don't want to waste your life by the wrong love, like Demas, we need to step back and we just need to take heed of God's warning. The things of this world, when, when compared to, to magnifying Christ and glorifying God, when informed by an eternal perspective, listen, will be exposed as being worthless. But there is a future in godliness. 
And for all who do the will of God, John says, they, by contrast, will live forever and they will reap the rewards in heaven. There is a reward for those of us who persevered to the end, like the Apostle Paul, as we're going to see next Sunday. You say, but I don't want to be gypped in this life. Listen, I don't want to be gypped in this life either. Who wants to be gypped in this life? And so much of our thinking, we think if I trust Christ, if I follow him, if I give my life to him, if I magnify him above everything else, I'm going to be cut. I'm going to get ripped off in this life. Listen, we need to read the stories of Enoch. Have you read the story of Abraham lately? How about Moses, Stephen? I know he was martyred. And Paul even was martyred. But you will find, man, they were not gypped by God. In fact, God enriched them here in this life. And he will vastly enrich their lives in eternity. I would rather be Abraham than Lot. I would rather be Jacob than Esau, as we learned last Sunday. I would rather be Peter than the rich young ruler with all his possessions who walked away from Christ. Some of you may remember the story from the Arabian Nights of a boat on the ocean that was attracted to a, a certain position on the sea. And so the captain, he just let go of the helm. Just let go. Taking the path of least resistance. What the captain didn't realize was that there was a magnetic island with tremendous power pulling the boat towards itself. As the ship neared the island, all of the nails and bolts were pulled out of it. And at that point, the ship fell apart and sank. Now, I know that's a fable, but what a point it makes. Because, folks, when we take the path of least resistance, and, and, and don't be fooled, living the Christian life, living the unwasted life, is not the path of least resistance. It's a hard path. Christ talked about that all through the Gospels. When the world attracts us and we give in to it, when we change our affection from loving Christ to loving the world, listen, we may find ourselves suddenly shipwrecked like Demas, wasting our lives. So how about you? What matters most to you? What will you choose in this life? Will you waste your life pursuing the world, a world that is passing away and where there is no future? Or will you make your life count by magnifying Christ above all things in this very world? Remember, Demas started out as what? A disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ. But he wasted his life as a deserter of Jesus. And it all began with this change of affection in his heart. And maybe you're here this morning, and as you have sat through this message, you're beginning to realize, man, I'm drifting just like Demas did. And you're a little scared right now of where you're at in your relationship with God. Or maybe you just, you know, man, I, I'm, I am headlong in a headlong pursuit of worldliness. Or maybe you realize your affection for the things of this world has is, is grown strong over the last few months, years. 
and your love for Christ has decreased. It's weak. Or perhaps you feel trapped by it all. You're entangled in this net of worldliness and you feel like, listen, there's no way out of it. I'm already too far in. Yes, resisting worldliness. Listen to me. It requires strenuous effort. It's an inside problem within the heart and it's a lifelong battle. However, this isn't a battle we can fight by sheer willpower or self-denial. We can't overcome worldliness on our own power. Do you realize we're not strong enough? We're not sufficient enough on our own. We need a much greater strength to overcome the seduction of the world. But folks, take heart. Take heart because all that we need to overcome worldliness has been provided for us. Do you realize that? All that we need, the antidote to the wrong love of worldliness, is simply the cross of Jesus Christ. Only through the power of the cross of Christ can we resist the seduction of this world. Listen to me, Christ's death on the cross is what makes possible our forgiveness of sin. And maybe you're here this morning and that's what you need first and foremost. You need to cry out to God and ask Him for His forgiveness. Agree with Him that where you are at is not right. And seek His forgiveness and receive it and be restored in a right relationship with God. But the cross of, of, of Jesus Christ, His death and resurrection, listen, it also provides the power to overcome sin. It provides the power to live the, waste, the unwasted life. And when we understand the cross, and I think sometimes we have, oh, we have forgotten the cross. Because when we truly begin to understand the cross, listen, it becomes the attraction that draws our hearts away from the empty pleasures of this world. If you want to weaken the influence of worldliness in your life, let me encourage you to take the advice of, of John Owen, this Puritan that I quoted before. Listen to his words again. He says, when someone sets his affections upon the cross and the love of Christ, he crucifies the world as a dead and undesirable thing. The baits of sin lose their affection and disappear. Fill your affections with the cross of Christ and you will find no room for sin, he says. Do you want to overcome Worldliness? Do you want to put boundaries in your life that, that help you not change of a, of your affection for Christ? Then focus on the cross of Christ. Meditate on the love of our Savior. For it is the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world, Paul wrote in Galatians 4. Charles Spurgeon urged his congregation and I quote, to dwell where the cries of Calvary can be heard. To dwell where the cries of Calvary can be heard. In other words, dwell on the grace of God revealed at the cross in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Listen, if we will do this, then we will not waste our lives by a wrong love. We will reap the eternal rewards in heaven. So where are you at this morning? Where's your affection? 
Has it changed in the last month, six months, year? If you look back, can you see a drifting pattern in your life? Listen, if that describes you, there's not, there, don't take shame in that so much. If you're a child of God, there's no condemnation. But the answer is not to continue down the deserter's path. The answer is to come to the cross. And simply receive the grace and the mercy and forgiveness of your sin, but also the power to live the unwasted life. And to begin setting our affections and our minds, our hearts, on the cross in the person of Jesus Christ. When's the last time you've dwelt on what Jesus has done for you? With our heads bowed. And as the praise team comes and as we prepare for Our response time. Listen, they're going to sing a, a verse, a song here. And, and, and again, I, you know, a congregation this size, I don't know where all of us are. I, I, I suspect that we're all over the place in relation to this message. I know my own heart. God's convicted me. And I know there's business I need to do with God at the cross. And perhaps you're in the same place. Let me encourage you to do that. Go to the cross. Run to it as fast as you can during our response time. And if you need to come and use this altar to do that, then do so. As Bill and the praise team sings, this is our opportunity. I want to sing of your love. I want to sing of your mercy. I 